So we start a new series uh, today for Advent, a four-week series on the Royal Psalms. Uh, so we have uh, various psalms uh, in the Psalter. We have uh, historical psalms, uh, hymns of praise, uh, lament, uh, and many others. And one of the uh, categories of psalms that we recognize are these royal psalms, which uh, speak about how the Davidic monarchy is the channel of blessing to the whole world, and that blessing is ultimately realized uh, in David's greatest son, uh, the Lord Jesus. And so we're going to look at uh, Psalm 2 today, next week Psalm 45, uh, then 72, and finally Psalm uh, 110. Uh, These psalms speak about the historical king in Israel's history, but aspects of these psalms uh, can never really be fulfilled in those kings. They can only be fulfilled uh, in the coming Messiah. As one writer says, a greater than David or Solomon was needed to justify the full fury of these threats and the glory of these promises. That's very typical in in every royal psalm. There are about uh, 10 or so of them. And so as we look at Psalm 2 today, let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help as we begin this series. Father, it is a privilege, an honor to, to preach your word and to know your son. And we pray that everyone uh, listening and all of our, all the folks in our sphere of influences would do as this psalm instructs, namely to kiss the Son, to worship Jesus Christ. Today as we meditate on your scriptures, may your scriptures lead us to your Son and worship him in glad adoration. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Everybody said amen, amen. When one of my sons was uh, younger, he asked me one day, Papa, who's in charge, you or Mama? And I think he, he asked that question because uh, he didn't like the first answer he received on what time bedtime was. And so he wanted to know if I had a word differently than his mother, which they realized that, that we, we don't, and she's in charge, um, kind of. Uh, it's the same kind of question that we, uh, we raise as we, we uh, think about this text today, and that is, who's in charge of the world, right? We look around the world even today, and we say, what in the world is going on? Or a more deeply philosophical question is, is history going anywhere? And this psalm answers these questions, showing us that everything centers on the King, Jesus Christ. History is moving toward Jesus' exaltation. It's moving toward the salvation of his people and his judgment on those who reject his reign. That's where history is going. In the words of the musical Hamilton, As they said of Hamilton, history has its eyes on you. Well, all of redemptive history has its eyes on this one we're reading about in Psalm 2, Jesus Christ. The psalm shows us then that true freedom and true security and true joy are only found in submission to Christ, the Christ who reigns over all. You see, this psalm reminds us of something we all need to know today, and that is the sovereignty in which we rest We rest in this king's sovereignty today. He is the king of the world, and that's no exaggeration. Often, you know, organizations or events are often, they put the the term world in there, and it's, it's not truly accurate, is it? Like the World Series is not the entire world playing together, or the World Wrestling Federation isn't exactly an accurate expression, but it is true and right to say that Jesus Christ is the king over the world. 
Now, this psalm, just a brief introduction on the psalm itself, is very important for a number of reasons, one of which is it is often quoted in the New Testament in reference to Christ and his everlasting kingdom. In fact, the, 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 the most often cited Old Testament passages in the New Testament are Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, which we'll look at uh, in this particular series. So, uh, verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 2 are quoted in Acts 4, 25 to 26, when the early church, uh, they're encountering persecution, and they look to this text as a comfort. Uh, verse 7 is alluded to several times, uh, and it is directly quoted three times. Verse 7, uh, which, uh, speaking of, uh, you are my son, today I have begotten you. It's quoted in Hebrews 1, 5 to speak of Jesus' superiority over angels. Again, in Hebrews uh, chapter 5, verse 5, it is uh, used to speak of Jesus' as ascent to his priestly role. And then again, in Acts 13, verses 33, uh, verse 33, it's used in reference to Jesus' resurrection and his kingship. So those are a couple of verses that are cited, verses 1 and 2 and verse 7. And then verse 9 of Psalm 2 is spoken of directly three times in the book of Revelation. Once as a reference to believers' victory in Christ, and twice in Jesus overcoming all of his enemies in the future, which tells us that this psalm speaks about both advents. This psalm speaks about Christ's first coming, the ultimate king, the ultimate Davidic son, and it also speaks ahead even further to his second coming in which he will put all of his enemies under his feet. So it's a very important psalm as it helps us understand the whole narrative of Holy Scripture. Now, another reason it's uh, significant is that Psalm 2 serves as an introduction into the Psalms itself. Um, in fact, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are uh, connected. Uh, both of the, you, you see this in a number of ways, one of which is the bookend. Psalm 1 begins with the word blessed, and then Psalm 2 ends with the same word blessed. Happy is the person, Psalm 1, who's meditating on the Scriptures. Psalm 2, happy is the person, blessed is the person who finds refuge in the Son. And these two go together. Meditating on the scriptures leads us to submit and embrace the son that the scriptures speak of. Uh, some of the early Greek manuscripts, actually, when quoting Psalm 2, they refer to it as Psalm 1. Uh, and that's why you don't see a superscription in, in either Psalm 1 or 2. These are like, this is like the doorway into the Psalter. What the psalmist wants us to see is that everything that is about to come forward is that which we should meditate on, specifically meditate on Jesus Christ, who is the, the hero of Scripture. And so it's a very significant psalm just to kind of prepare us for uh, what's about to unfold uh, in the, the book of Psalms. Now that's enough of intro on the psalms. Let's dive in for a moment. You see in this psalm four distinct voices. There are four speakers. Uh, first, you see in verses 1 to 3, the nations are speaking. Then you see in verses 4 to 6, the, the Father is speaking about uh, the, his king, his son. Verses 7 and 9 are the, are the, uh, refer to the, the king or the son who's speaking. And verses 10 to 12 is back to the psalmist, or you might even say the spirit who's inspiring the psalmist to speak. So let's look at it in, in those four parts. You see, number one, foolish rebellion. You see, number two, divine derision. You see, number three, the king's coronation. And number four, you see wise submission. So first of all, foolish rebellion in verses one to three. The psalm begins with the question, why do the nations rage? Why do they congregate in commotion? And it's elementary, dear Watson. 
Right? They, they rage because they're angry. They want to throw off the rule of the Lord. The nations, which are made up of people, are still raging and rebelling against the Lord and against his authority. You can think about various religious groups around the world today that rage against Christians. Or you can think about the more subtle secularism that pervades the West that wants nothing to do with Christ and his word. We still live in a world that rages against the Lord's authority. This is an old story. People don't want to submit to the reign of God. They hate the rule of God, actually, with all their guts. Now, we don't know, again, the precise time of this psalm and and what particular episode, if an episode specifically was in mind of the psalmist, but we just know by reading the Bible that throughout Israel's history, the, the surrounding nations raged against the Lord and his king. They wanted nothing to do with his word. They wanted to throw off his rule. And today, the powers that be tell us that following Christ and his word leads to slavery, It leads to oppression, but they're wrong. As this psalm shows us, that submission to Christ actually leads to freedom, actually leads to fulfillment, and rejecting his rule is what leads to slavery and death. As Paul says in Romans 1, their foolish hearts were darkened as they rejected God. So the psalmist begins with this question, why? It's senseless. Why do the nations rage? against our Lord. And he says, second part of verse one, why do they plot in vain? Now, interestingly, this this word plot is the exact same word in Hebrew in uh, Psalm one, verse two, for meditate, where the, the blessed person is meditating on God's word day and night. Those who are rejecting the rule of God and the, the, the word of God, they're meditating, scheming, plotting against way, way, for ways in which they could rebel against the Lord and his people. But those plots don't work. He says, why do they, what do they murmur? That's how you could translate that word. What do they murmur murderously? Why do they growl against the Lord? He goes on in verse two to say, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. They conspire against the anointed one. Again, this points ahead to the greatest anointed one, the Lord Jesus. Historically, Samuel anointed Saul, 1 Samuel 10, verse 1, and he anointed David, 1 Samuel 16, verse 13, anointed them as the anointed one, as the king. And we get the word Messiah by transliterating the Hebrew word anointed. So we, we today are recognize Jesus as the Messiah, as the ultimate anointed one. And to rebel against the anointed one in David's day was to cut yourself off from knowing God himself. As the, the king would, would, would be a representation uh, for God. And sadly, they, they were far from that. But that was the ideal. But Jesus Christ does that. He is the ultimate anointed one, the Messiah, who shows us how to know God. But they want to throw off this rule. They want to break apart their bonds. Notice verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Bonds here can be translated fetters or ropes that were used to constrain animals or ropes linked to a yoke. And so he says here, those who want nothing to do with God, they want nothing to do with his word, they feel that they're entrapped. They feel like they're, they're in bonds. 
But that is quite a contrast for those who are happy followers of Jesus, who understand Jesus' yoke to be easy and his burden light. We don't, we don't feel like we're enslaved and trapped when we follow Jesus. We actually feel free and alive when we follow Jesus. So that's a good question, I think, for us. Do you find following Jesus freeing and joyful? If you think about Sundays, do you, do you find these days to be the gloomiest days ever? <laughs> I used to think that. That's not a good th- sign of your spiritual condition, to feel like it's bonds. No, it's just liberty. But the nations, in their own sinfulness, want nothing to do with God. They continue to rage. A couple of weeks ago, we had a pastor here who's ministering among Muslims in the Middle East, and he, he told us about some uh, believers, new believers in the little church that they've started, how their, uh, their families have re- totally rejected them, and they're raging against the fact that their daughter had become a Christian, and the nations are still raging. We shouldn't be surprised by that. This text is awakening us to reality. In the words of 1 John, do not be surprised that the world hates you. This is the world in which we live. It is a raging world that wants nothing to do with the authority of God. Now, I find it really encouraging to think about that passage in Acts chapter 4, verses 23 and following. At the onset of persecution against the early church, it is this text that they took up. As they said in Acts chapter 4, verse 25, they, they, they cite Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? And they, they use this text to pray and to remind themselves of the fact that God reigns over it all. He's sovereign over it all. And they apply these words to Herod and Pilate and uh, the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel who were opposed to Christ and his church. And they prayed as they were having these attackers who were mocking them and ridiculing them, and it gave them confidence and assurance. And that's what this psalm should do. It should remind us of the sovereignty in which we rest, that we should never be surprised by opposition, but also don't be afraid of it. Why? Well, notice the second part here, divine derision. Because God laughs at it all. It says in verse 4, He who sits or is enthroned in the heavens, what does he say to those who are raging against him? He laughs. He doesn't even stand up. He does a big LOL at all of it. He doesn't say, oh no, I might lose. Oh no, my plan may not prevail. No, he holds them in derision, it says. He's amused by them. Now, we shouldn't read this to think that God doesn't have a love for the world. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. He desires for all people to be saved. And we shouldn't think that, 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 you know, this is God being distant or detached or being some kind of tyrant. No, this, this text is just giving us a different focus. It's showing us that God is not panicked by the raging of the world. He's not panicked by the threats of uh, the, 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 the people who think they have power today. Think about Isaiah 40, verse 23. It says of God, He brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. And how many people today are just so caught up with uh, political issues as if the whole history of the world's going to rise or fall upon whoever is in a particular position. Look at how God looks at these kings, the rulers of the world. What does he do? He laughs at them. And those who oppose him, he's not, he's not frightened by them. 
You know, I thought about the, uh, the classic movie, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. When uh, Indy comes face to face with that scary and flamboyant swordsman who's doing all of his impressive tricks. But he wasn't panicked. He just pulls his pistol out. Pow! He, he's toast. It looked like it was going to be an epic duel, but it was over in a second. And the rage of these puny kings are nothing in the eyes of our Lord. Now, this is quite shocking language to say that God is laughing. <laughs> but I think that's to make a point. And it's, it's a good reminder for us that the biblical writers don't simply want to express truth to us. They want to impress truth on us. Like you could just say it plainly, God is sovereign over all these people. Or you can say, God laughs at them. They're both making the same point. These puny kings are no threat to God. They're no contest. I remember when I was a little kid, I would go up and try to, you know, wrestle and fight with my uncles and my dad. And they would do those things, that little thing where they, you do with little guys, you put your hand on their head and you're swinging and you can't, you can't hit them. And you're, I'm just in more and more rage as I'm trying to hit them. And they're just laughing at me. It's kind of like that here in this text with the raging opposition and the Lord who is enthroned over it all laughs at them. That's what Psalm seven, uh, 37 also says. Psalm 37 verse 12. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked. For he sees that his day is coming. The day of judgment is coming for those who rage and rebel against the Lord. He's not troubled by them. And we should not be troubled by opposition. So verses 1 and 3 tells us don't be surprised by opposition. The nations will rage against those who embrace the gospel. They will rage against the church. But verses 4 to 6 tell us, don't be bothered by them. Don't be afraid of them. Why? Because Psalm 2 is true. Listen to how Psalm 59 puts it. David is crying out to God in a crisis. Saul was seeking his life. And David says, but you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. Oh, my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress. This God who laughs is our strength. He is our fortress in times of opposition, in times of persecution. Now, verse 5, it shifts from the Lord's laughter to the Lord's wrath. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So the nations, he's saying in verse 5, are not getting away with anything. Wrath is coming. Judgment is coming. It is a delayed judgment because God is merciful. He's actually allowing the raging nations, he's actually allowing the rebellious time to repent, as Peter puts it. So even those who right now are raging against the church might actually get converted. If you take the, the Apostle Paul, if there was anyone who was raging against the Lord's work, it was the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts persecuting Christians, and the Lord converts him. And God is still doing that work today. And then you hear God's majestic voice in verse 6. I have set my king on Zion's hill. He says, let me tell you who the king is. The I in Hebrew is emphatic. It's put in the front of the sentence, denoting his authority. All of the rage of the nations, and God speaks from heaven, as for me, I have set my king on Zion. It's similar to Psalm 46, verse 6. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, and the earth melts. And with his voice, 
He tells us he's installed his king. Again, this in its historical context is speaking of a Davidic king. But we know David, though he won many victories, could not fulfill all that is said in this psalm. And it points us to Jesus Christ who has been installed in heavenly Zion. No one will defeat Jesus Christ. Don't let the current times deceive you. There is one who supremely rules. And he rules not from a governmental uh, house, but he, he rules from heavenly Zion. And this is what our weary soul needs, to be reminded of who's in charge here. I love the, the Christmas carol, A Thrill of Hope, The Weary World Rejoices. Church, we have great reason to rejoice in the midst of weariness, and it is in the fact that God has set his king in heavenly Zion, Jesus Christ, who rules over all. And it's to him we turn now in the third part of the psalm, verses 7 to 9, as the psalmist speaks not only here of foolish rebellion, and then of divine derision. But now he speaks of the king's coronation. Verse 7, he says, I will tell of the decree, a new voice now. This is the son. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. The king here is recalling what God said at his coronation. You are my son was a coronation language. So if you were to go back to 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, when David is installed as king, this is what is said to him, that he would be God's son. And that's because God is king, and his son was the representation of him. He was, he was the king, but he was also recognized as son. It was all part of the same package. To be Israel's king was to be God's son. And so they would use high-flown language to speak about divine sonship and a global inheritance. This was all used at the coronation ceremony. But all of it was just a type of foreshadowing of one who is truly the eternal son, who is truly the king of all kings, Jesus Christ. Now he says here, today I have made you my son. This suggests a, a moment in time in which the king would take up these titles and take up these responsibilities. Now, as you think about how this psalm is used in the New Testament, as I mentioned, verse 7 is, is alluded to and directly quoted a number of times. Jesus is referred to, and, and the Father spoke of him actually, as his beloved son, both at his baptism and at the transfiguration. But as you read carefully through the New Testament, you see it is at the resurrection above all that his kingship is declared and most celebrated. This distinguished Jesus from every other Israelite king. He rose from the dead. You go check David's tomb, they would say in the book of Acts, and you're going to find a body. You go look for the body of King Jesus, and you're going to realize he's gone. Nobody there. And that's a good reminder for us today as we think about Christmas. Christmas is only good news because Easter is true. Because Christ is alive, we have hope. We celebrate not just this baby that was born in a manger, but the king who rose from the dead, who, has, who is seated at the Father's right hand, who will return again and claim the nations for himself. Now, that passage in Acts 13 makes this connection between his sonship being celebrated and the resurrection. This is in the sermon that Paul preaches at Antioch, Pisidia. In Acts 13, verse 30, Paul says, But God raised him from the dead... 
And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son today, I have begotten you. In other words, the cross and the resurrection were the great turning points in redemptive history. It is true that Jesus was born a king. That's what they declared to Jesus at the birth. And it was true that as he was ministering, the kingdom of God was breaking forth. But the great turning point in which he is declared and celebrated to be the king, according to Paul, was at his glorious resurrection. This is how Paul begins the book of Romans when he says, Jesus was declared to be the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. No king of Israel ever rose from the dead. But Jesus is the king to end all kings. He is the ultimate son, the ultimate king, the one who says all authority has now been given to me. Go into all the nations and make disciples. Hebrews 1.5 uses this verse to speak of Jesus' superiority to angels. And then in Hebrews 5.5 shows how his exaltation after his resurrection leads to now his mediatorial priestly role interceding for us. In other words, New Testament writers thought about Psalm 2 when they thought about Christ's resurrection, exaltation, superiority to every being in heaven and his intercessory work right now. It's a rich psalm. It's an amazing psalm. So church, Christ, our risen and ascended king, rules over all. He is exalted above all of heaven. He is interceding now for us. And our weary souls rejoice in this good news. Now, verse 8 is also one of those verses that was never fully fulfilled in an Israelite king. As it says, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. Jesus' rule will reach the ends of the earth. And this has not happened fully yet. This is one of those aspects that is in process. It's taking place now as we take the gospel to the nations. Psalm 72, we'll look at it in a couple weeks, hopefully, speaks of the global dominion of the king. That Jesus is not a little village king. He's not just a king for one particular nation, but he is the king of all nations. This was promised all the way back in Genesis 49, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Same phrase you find in Romans uh, chapter 1 and the end of Romans. The obedience of the nations as the gospel goes forth and they embrace the king. So this is important for us as we think about right now, especially during this Christmas missions offering, as we think about praying for the global spread of the gospel, that we go under the authority of Jesus Christ. We go with the presence of Jesus Christ, and we go with the promise that the nations will be one to Jesus Christ. It's a glorious mission we get to be part of. Verse 9 as I mentioned, this is a, the verse that's mentioned three times in Revelation, speaking of judgment, when it says, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Jesus will absolutely crush all of the raging nations who have rebelled against him. Our Lord is a victorious Savior. He is a warrior. It may not be politically correct to, to think in these terms, but... This text is showing us, yes, Jesus is gentle. Yes, Jesus welcomes us, but Jesus is not soft. He is the victorious warrior. He is the mighty son of God. 
and he will rule and reign forever. And so what should we do with this? What should we do with this fact of his sonship, of his kingship, of the judgment that is to come those who rebel against him? Verses 10 to 12, the final part of the psalm, speak of wise submission. Wise submission. You would think after what has just been said about the foolish rebellion of the nations made up of people as old as the garden, wanting to be like God, rebelling against his authority, You would think in light of God's sovereignty over them all and in light of the fact that he's given a way to know him through the Messiah that the final verses would just be your toast. But it's actually an appeal to the rebellious. You see now something of the great love of God toward even his enemies, toward his rebels as he is appealing to them to turn to the king that they may not perish. Notice he says in verse 10, Know therefore, Now therefore, kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So who's the audience? The earth. Everyone who's ever lived on planet earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. That's a strange combination, but it is known to those who truly know the Lord. There is a rejoicing and there is a trembling. There is a fear, and there is a happiness. In the old John Newton hymn, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." There's relief and joy, and there's fear and trembling. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And the final verse, verse 12, such a vivid psalm. It ends vividly. Kiss the sun. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. No social distancing with the king. Kiss him. Kiss this king. This is a way to speak of affection, of loyalty, of paying homage. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 18, God says to the discouraged Elijah, I have kept for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal nor kissed him. It's an expression of worship. He's got 7,000 who are not kissing this idol. The psalm ends with this same appeal to us to pay homage to Jesus, to love him, to kiss him. Now, the idea of being kissed by someone who's not your family is a bit uncomfortable to many of us. And if I were to ask you, How many people have you ever kissed in your life? That would create a very awkward moment, wouldn't it? My friends, have you ever kissed the sun? Have you ever kissed Christ? There are two ways you can kiss Christ. Like Judas, in betrayal and rebellion. Or what's in mind here, a Near Eastern kiss of love and loyalty. That's what we do in worship. We kiss the Son because we love Him. We want to serve Him. We energetically, affectionately, trustingly kiss the Son today. We pay homage to Him. And this is the appeal of the psalmist in light of everything that is said. Will you stop your rebellion? And would you pay homage to Jesus Christ, the King of heaven and earth, and pay homage to Him? You know, one of my preaching heroes is D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, perhaps the 
best well-known preacher in the 20th century, preached in London for over 30 years, was an eminent physician before he went into the ministry. And this was the next to last sermon he preached on Psalm 2. He would die in a month of cancer. And the people in attendance spoke about how this little man was just had sweat coming down his face, having cancer, telling the congregation, kiss the son, kiss the son. It is with that force that the psalmist is doing the same for us today, passionately telling us, kiss the son. Why? So that you don't perish. Don't reject him, but embrace him, love him. And those who do, notice the, the promise, the benediction, blessed are all who take refuge in him. As one writer has put it well, there is no refuge from him, only in him. The only safe place to be today is in Jesus Christ. And so this psalm ends really with an evangelistic invitation. It defines the human problem, and that is our revolt against God. And it tells us the one solution, God's Son. It warns against judgment to those who rebel, but it tells us the way to the Father's house, which comes through Jesus Christ, those who kiss the Son, who receive Him and love Him. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Calvin, the great reformer, put it like this, whoever is not satisfied with Christ with Christ alone, strives after something beyond absolute perfection. Whoever is not satisfied with Christ alone strives after something beyond absolute perfection. In other words, it is him and him alone that fully satisfies. We find blessing, we find refuge, we find salvation in our Messiah. So church, be satisfied in him. Love him. Kiss him. Serve him. Speak of him. Anticipate him. Who's in charge here? King Jesus. He's in charge. And we're glad he is. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word today. What a, what a psalm. What a message. We are mindful today of our human problem. Namely, we rebel against you. And we are grateful for the one solution you have provided in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior and King and we delight in him today. Lord Jesus, in our hearts today, we, we kiss you. We bow to you. We embrace you. We affectionately adore you. We long for your second advent in which we will see you face to face. Until that day, we pray you would find us faithful here on this earth to tell the nations that there is a way to escape this judgment and find glorious salvation provided in our Savior who died and rose and who is returning. Bless your church now as we prepare our hearts to take the table, we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen.